Well, as Meredith keeps promising, and I uh, keep failing to deliver on, we're going to start moving a bit quicker through Exodus, starting in a week or two, probably. (laughs) I thought we could go one law and one tabernacle decoration at a time, but no, apparently not. We have reached in the story what many would consider the climax of the Exodus, although you could make a case for the Passover like Meredith did last week, or the encounter with God at Mount Sinai that is to come being climaxes. But God is about to split the sea so that the people can walk through on dry land. A couple weeks ago when we were live, we did a short Q&A session as part of our time together to discuss any lingering questions about these opening stories of Exodus from Moses in a basket through the plagues. And there were some really good questions that people asked that kept me thinking afterwards about how we read the Exodus stories. I've made the case along the way that there's a certain literary character to these stories that encourages us to take them seriously, if not always literally. The author seems to be using tools like exaggeration and figurative language to get their points across. And some people asked, well, then is there any evidence that these events actually happened? If the stories seem to be of a more literary than historical bent, in terms of how they're being told, might we even read them as allegory or mythology of some sort? And there are, of course, plenty of people who have read Exodus that way through the centuries. But I don't think the clues within the story or the evidence of how the story has shaped Israel and then the church, I don't think those point in the direction of the Exodus being pure fiction. If we are staking our lives on the fundamental truth that our God can be trusted and that our God is one who sets people free and gives them life, there's something a bit lacking for me if that trust is based upon a story that didn't actually happen. I feel the same about the resurrection. If all our God does is give warm, fuzzy feelings, but not actual life, then I find myself a bit less interested in what they're selling. But that all brings us back to how we read these stories of God acting in decisive, miraculous ways. How do we know when we should, on the one hand, take these stories literally? On the other hand, when they are pure fiction, but true fiction, if you will, like Jesus's parables, where they're true in what they say about God without actually having happened. And when, on the third hand, they're using figurative language to embellish a real event, not to make it untrue, but so as to better bring out the theological truth of that event. And I wish that there was a nice, simple answer to that question. I suppose the simple answer would be, well, you look for the literary and context clues, to which the proper response would probably be, gee, thanks, Curtis. Uh, That really clears things up. (laughs) If I knew how to find the clues, then I wouldn't have a problem wondering how to interpret the story. Well, today, we're going to look at one form that those clues might take in the Bible, and in fact, do take often, if you know what to look for. The way that the story of Israel crossing the sea is told, I think, is meant to help us read all of what comes before and after in the book of Exodus better. I think the way the story is told, the types of language that's used, it allows us to see a depth of truth that a straight historical retelling, just the facts, would not. The literary embellishments that we see in this story and the exaggerations along the way and all of that actually make the story more true, not less, at least more true in the way that matters. But before we get to that, I want to give an analogy that is a little closer to home (laughs) within the last 200 years, at least. Many of you will recognize these words. Um, Anyone who wants, they can sing along with them, although I'm not going to be singing for your benefit right now. But these are the words of a song that you might be familiar with. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, 
He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. For those of you who didn't grow up with a cassette tape called We Sing America in your car, like I did, that's the first verse of the battle hymn, The Republic, a song first published in 1862 during the Civil War. It was written by an abolitionist named Julia Ward Howe. And let me read a couple more verses just so you can get the flavor of the thing. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel as ye deal with my contemners. No idea what a contemner is, actually. Uh, So with you, my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. If you don't pick up all the allusions to the Bible in there, well, don't worry. There are a bunch. Revelation, Genesis, Psalms, the Gospels, they all show up. And if you weren't aware of the time period when the song was written, you might not pick up on what Ward Howe is actually doing with all these biblical references. Here's the fifth verse that makes things a little bit clearer. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. And here's kind of the key line. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free, while God is marching on. This song, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, is about the Civil War. So what are all these references to the Bible doing? They're there to give meaning to what is happening in the day-to-day events of the Civil War. Ward Howe could have, I suppose, written a treatise about the battles that were occurring about the philosophical and even theological meaning behind those battles. She could have given a sermon on the deeper truth about what she saw God doing in the events that surrounded her. But she didn't. She wrote a song. And in that song, she piled illusion upon illusion to the stories in Scripture, in particular the stories of judgment, so that her point would not be missed. Her point being, it may seem that this is just another war with horrific events and men killing other men, But if that's all you see, the bullets and the marching soldiers and the dead bodies and the tactical strategies of the generals, well, then you're missing the point. Because what is actually happening is that God is on the march, throwing down the evil that is slavery and bringing judgment upon the heads of those who have perpetrated this injustice for so long. Whatever the day-to-day events might be, that is the truth of what's going on, according to Ward Howe. There are things that really happen, but in order to see the truth, we need to wrap those events in the proper illusions. And with that analogy said, I'm going to read the story that we're looking at today. This is Exodus 14. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Haroth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zaphon, you shall camp opposite by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So, He had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 elite chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 
Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army, they overtook them, camped by the sea, by Pihaharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And see the deliverance that Yahweh will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so... I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, Yahweh, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at dawn, the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, Yahweh tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that Yahweh did against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh and believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Among the words in that story are allusions that we might hear if we know what to listen for. Because what is happening in this story? The enemy forces that oppose God are bearing down on Israel, who is trapped by the sea. And God sends a wind over the waters of chaos and splits them, dividing the sea and making dry land appear, so that God's people could go through the water and come out the other side and live. 
its creation. When the Spirit of God hovers like a wind over the chaotic sea and splits it, dividing water and land and bringing forth life. And more, it's also alluding to the creation myths of the surrounding nations. One of the commentators I read in preparation for this sermon actually made the case that the plot of this story mirrored in many ways the Babylonian creation myth Enuma Elish. Because unlike in Genesis, in the myths like Enuma Elish, creation is done in the face of enemy forces, with the gods fighting for supremacy. And the story ends with the splitting of the enemy sea goddess, and the creation of land, and then people. In chapter 15, after these events, the people sing about what Yahweh has done in fighting for them. And in chapter 15, verse 16, God is said to have bought or purchased the Hebrew people, or at least that's how the word is usually translated, purchased, sometimes ransomed. But the word could just as easily mean created, in the sense of procreated, gave birth to. Israel sings in chapter 15 of being the people whom God birthed in the events of this chapter. These allusions are of a mythological character, but that does not mean they are clues that the events never happened. Rather, they are clues that the events have been embellished in exactly the way the events of the Civil War are embellished in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The words that are used and the way the story is told is done so as to allude to earlier stories that people would have known, because this was the way to bring out the deeper truth of what had happened at the sea. Not simply, God had rescued a frightened bunch of escaped slaves, but, in the words of Walter Brueggemann, God had done a deed as powerful, original, and life-giving as the very newness of creation. God had created a community, that now knows Yahweh and that worships Yahweh in song in response in the very next chapter. So, what does that mean for how we read this story? Was the land bone dry, like the story says, as Israel walked? Well, maybe it was a little muddy, and that's why the chariot's wheels end up getting stuck. But that doesn't matter, because the deeper truth is that God has formed dry land out of the split sea, as in creation. Did the whole of Pharaoh's army really get destroyed in the sea? Well, of course not. Historically, that would be a little bit ridiculous. But at a deeper level, of course they did. Because in creation, God has wholly defeated the enemies of life. And then this also tells us how to read not just the story of the sea, but what has come before in the Exodus. The exaggerations of the plague stories, where every single plant is destroyed multiple times. That's not meant to give us a literal account of the botanical devastation of the plague of locusts. It's meant to highlight that creation is being undone in preparation for the new creation that will come at the sea. The sometimes absurd character of Pharaoh, who begins as the sort of inhuman monster who commands whole generations of babies to be thrown into the Nile, and becomes by the end a wholly irrational figure, who's been humiliated and devastated by Yahweh, but then changes his mind again and pursues the Israelites to his own and his army's destruction, even though clearly he should know better. Well, is his character maybe a bit overstated? Yeah, probably. But it's in service of the message that Yahweh is overcoming the seemingly invincible forces of chaos in order to bring their holy people to life. So Pharaoh has to look invincible and chaotic. 
all of the even numbers, the usually exaggerated even numbers of Moses's life as a shepherd in the wilderness in his 80s, and the number of Hebrews who escaped being larger than what historians estimate was the entire population of Israel at the height of David's power centuries later. No, Moses almost certainly was not leading the people through the wilderness well after hitting the century mark. And no, two million plus people did not trek out of Egypt. But those numbers aren't meant to tell us precise ages and head counts. They're meant to call to mind, on the one hand, the mythological ages of Genesis, when God began this great work of creation. And on the other hand, to communicate the greatness of the deeds that Yahweh has accomplished. As we will see in coming weeks, the clues in the story of the sea also point us forward to the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law, indicating to us that we should read those not as a list of arbitrary rules and legalistic regulations, but rather as the charter describing the character of this people who has been birthed by this God, a character that should reflect the character of Yahweh in all facets of life. The mythological character of this story does not tell us that it didn't happen. It helps us interpret what did happen in the proper way. That the story of Exodus is not just about God being more powerful than Pharaoh and freeing some slaves so that they would obey the law of Yahweh. It's not even just about God showing that they are trustworthy and keep their promises. The story of Exodus, seen in the theological light demanded by the splitting of the sea, is the story of God overcoming the forces of chaos and darkness to give birth to a new community of people, a community that knows Yahweh in the deepest sense, a community that trusts Yahweh's character, a community that lives in such a way together that reflects that Yahweh's character, and in so doing reflects Yahweh to the whole world so that they might know the true God. Now, if that sounds like the goal God had in Genesis for humanity from the beginning, if it sounds like the vision God gives to Abraham and his family that they would be a blessing to the nations, if it reminds you of what Jesus was doing in gathering disciples around himself, well, that's because this is the story that our God has been telling all along. Meredith mentioned last week that in the establishment of the Passover in Exodus chapter 13, future generations are instructed to tell their children the story like this. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Because they were that community that had been birthed on the shores of the sea when Yahweh split the waters and brought forth dry land and life. And now we are that community as well. The community that God has given birth to the community that knows and trusts Yahweh God, the community that lives in such a way as to reflect God's character to the world so that they might know too. As part of our response together, we considered what this new creation idea means because there's an important reason for the story to be told in these terms. The Hebrews soon show, as the Exodus continues, that they don't realize the importance of what God has done as they will immediately begin to whine the refrain that Meredith and I have sometimes used with kids for the stories of water and manna in the wilderness that are to come next. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We want to go back to Egypt. The people show that they don't see what God has done in setting them free, that God has taken them out of one reality, governed by power and oppression and death, and has brought them through the water to a new reality, 
a new life, if you will, governed by goodness and abundance and life. Perhaps we might take what Paul says in 2 Corinthians and adjust it a bit to say that, thus, if anyone has walked through the waters, there is a new creation. Old things have gone, and look, everything has become new. It's important to remember, as the people of God, not just what God has done for us in setting us free, but also what we have been set free from. Before we get to the stories to come in this book of Exodus that highlight the life God is leading the Hebrews to, let's take some time to reflect on what we're being led away from. For the Hebrews, it was slavery, oppression, death, an economic system that tells them they are only worth the number of bricks they produce, a social system that says they are less than human, a religious system that tells them to try to please the fickle gods of Egypt. But for us, what? There are some who would answer that they've been set free from addictions of some kind, whether to substances, to hate, to money. But slavery takes many forms, now as always, and God sets us free from all of them. We have been set free from what is in many ways a similar economic system that defines our worth by what we produce. We've been set free from the treadmill of status and wealth. We've been set free from needing approval from others. There are themes that might be the same for all of us, but the specifics will be all our own in our own story. So I'd invite you to take a few minutes to reflect on that question. What has God set you free from? May we be people who live free because we trust a God who has split the waters and brought us through to life on dry land. Amen.